Okay, guys, thanks. Thanks for coming. Um, so, so this is the first talk after uh, the Passover break, Pesach. I, I, I just want to tell you, I, I had sort of like an adventure of sorts. Um, I was up in the, the Catskill Mountains of, uh, of New York City, which, um, which is a really sort of interesting experience. And I, there, was, there was one thing that happened right before uh, uh, Pesach started. And it just, I don't know, it was like one of these crazy real-life kind of adventures. So I just want to just, just uh, relate it to you. Um, so what happened was, uh, I don't know if, if many of you have been up in the Catskills. Uh, it's, it used to be sort of like the, in the, in the heyday of the Catskills, it was it was just like the, the summer retreat of like Jews like all over New York and the tri-state area and probably a lot of the country and they'd go they had like bungalow colonies up there and all the comedians and musicians used to play up there and the the Borschfeld if you've ever heard of the Borschfeld that that's the Borschfeld that the Catskills is the Borschfeld so then after a certain after a certain period I guess sometime in the 80s the early 80s or something like that it basically disappeared. Like, people just totally stopped going up there. And so there still is, there are remnants um, of Jewish life up there, but it's not the same as it was by any means. It's, it's very much not the heyday. And, and I've had very, even though I'm from New York City, I, I've had very little uh, exposure to that place. Um, but, so, so, so here was my experience. It was right before Shabbos, you know, this, this year you had Shabbos, and then as soon as Shabbos was over, it was... Pesach, right? So you went right into it. And so um, I was with my brother-in-law, and, you know, I wanted to go to the, the mikveh before Shabbos, before Pesach. So, um, so we're driving around, uh, we're driving around these roads, and it's still the daytime, and I'm telling you, the, 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 the road, it's, it, it's a combination of, of Hasidim, haunted houses, and hillbillies. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I kid you not. It's it's complete. It's Twin Peaks, and I'm like conceiving this whole TV series as we're driving down this road. I mean, I'm talking about boarded up Victorian houses. I mean, that this I'm not being like you know descriptive here. This is really what it was, and we're we're looking for like a, a mikvah, and there are like mikvahs, like you know this sort of. So anyway. We, we go past this place, and then you'll see something really weird, which I guess is just America. You'll see a giant Walmart. And, and that Walmart, by the way, is the largest grossing Walmart in America. That one. And apparently, if you go Saturday night, I was told just lots of Jews shopping. <laughs> and like long black coats, you know, and just shopping. So that in itself, like late Saturday night, I'm sure that that's someone's got to YouTube that. Yeah. But um, but but anyway, we're driving around and and you're going from community to community, and one of them, I got my picture taken in front of this. This was this was classic. It's a beautiful, you know, very respectable white um, white house. I, I I don't. I'm sure there's a, a an architectural term that that describes it, but I, I don't know it. But, um, you know, almost like a schoolhouse, it looks like. And there in English and in Hebrew letters above it, it says, this is, it says, the Congregation Anshe Hurleyville. 
And you know, which is like, can you imagine like more of a, a hick sounding name, Hurleyville? And there you see it's spelled in Hebrew, and Anshe means men of, you know, like men of standing, Anshe Hurleyville. And I had my picture taken in front of that because it's like that was that was a treasure. So, so we're 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 driving around, and and you go through these little commercial districts, which are like half a block long. And all the stores are closed because it's off-season or they're out of business. And then you're, once you go through that half-block worth of stores, that was the commercial district. It's just more haunted houses, you know, and, and, and woods and stuff like that until you reach the next stretch. What city? Um, well, th- this is... Um, Hurleyville. That was Hurleyville. <laughs> and then there's, uh, 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 I think it was called... Um, Fallsburg is another big place. Um, so we go through, and, and we get to another commercial district. And this one was larger. But, I mean, if you... I'll give you a, a description. If you picture this in your mind, you'll have a very accurate, actually, view of what it is. If you've ever, and I'm sure we all have, seen a classic Western where, where the town is ap- absolutely deserted, you know, for like the big showdown. That's what it looked like. It looked like that street. It could be a set for a Western. And then we make a turn, and, um, and there in the distance is a freestanding Victorian house that looks like it's, it's like, the, like the Munster's house, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And next to it was a rabbi and his two or three sons with Paeus burning chametz because this was the last... This was the last opportunity, basically, you know, you get rid of all your bread products before Passover and everything like that, and anything that you have left, you, you burn. And so if, it was totally surreal. If you can imagine a completely desolate, no, no population, a freestanding Victorian house, and some <laughs> Jewish people burning bread in the middle of a field. So, so my, my, my brother-in-law, like pulls the car over and asks the rabbi there, where, um, where is, uh, you know, where's the closest mikvah? And he says, well, there's, there's a beautiful one, actually, um, but for, for women, but for, for men, if you, you know what, there's a new one they're building, and he gives us directions. And it was back from where we came, back toward Kaimisha, if you know um, that area. So now we get in the car and we turn around, and believe it or not, this, I, I just love this detail, it was... Um, we had to turn left on Lover's Lane. That was the, that was the, the name of the little street there. So we turn left on Lover's Lane, and we go in the middle of this, you know, now we're like in the mountains. It's very secluded. But there's like this yeshiva enclave there, in kind of like in the, in the hills in there, totally off the main drag and everything like that. You couldn't see it from the road at all. And um, there... We're looking for, we're looking for like this beautiful new men's mikvah that they had sent us to, and um, we're looking around. We can't see anything, and there's like one old-looking building that has an open window, and we we see hanging out the window is half of a towel. <laughs> okay, that's a clue. But this doesn't look like anything that we were going to be driving a long time to find, you know. And then we look over to the left and there are a ton of cars like a parking lot full of cars like t- 
totally out of the blue, like something's going on, right? So my brother puts me in charge of, he says, well, you know, maybe that's the old mikveh and there's a new mikveh. And I'm thinking, you know, to build a mikveh, it's sort of an expensive proposition. And if they've got a mikveh at all, that's probably a big deal already. There's going to be a, a new mikvah. So, so that was my assignment to find the new mikvah, right? Meanwhile, he's going to investigate why all the cars are there. So he goes and um, he comes back. And this is kind of the point of the story. He comes back. And now, believe it or not, there's a, there's a, a special... It's, this is really like the highest level. If you want to talk about matzahs, you know, and matzahs for your seder... Um, the highest level, well, you know, you have the machine-made matzahs, you know, that you buy in the supermarket. Those are the square ones. Then, you know, on a significantly higher level, you have the the handmade ones, which are rounder and, and bigger, you know, the shmura matzahs. But the, the, the cream of the cream are the matzahs that are made in the moments before Pesach, that are handmade like... Those are like those are like the real special special holy matzos. I mean, all matzos holy, but this is like this is like the highest, you know. So now, remember, this was erev Shabbos. This was right before Shabbos, but Shabbos goes right into Pesach. So these were the last moments where you could cook those matzos, basically. So what was going on there? All the people. This was a um, this was a collection of Vishnitzer Chasidim, and they were all there baking matzos before Pesach. Now, if you, you know, if you're baking matzahs or baking bread or anything like that, any, any type of scene you could picture like that, what are people going to be wearing? You know, you'll wear um, an apron or you'll wear, you know, like white kind of, you know, industrial kind of work clothes, something like that. So, so while my, my, my brother-in-law comes back and he says, they're baking matzahs. And I, I said, whoa, you know, like we found like the secret matzah baking factory hidden in the hills, you know? And so he, he, he's, I said, can we get some? And he said, they told me to come back in 20 minutes, right? So meanwhile, I'm now, hey, meanwhile, I'm now trying to find the new mikvah. <laughs> and, and I find, I go in this, this building and I find, uh, I open up the door, and there is a turnstile there, like in a New York subway, like from your foot to above your head, a full-on turnstile with like 20 rows, and there's the new mikvah, but it's locked, and there's no one who has a key. So now I'm thinking, okay, i got to find the key, you know? But I was amazed that there actually was a new mikvah, right? So, so I start wandering down these halls looking for anyone. And I go through this, essentially this abandoned building with hallway after hallway after hallway, probably the equivalent of maybe two or three city blocks of empty hallways with piles of books and stacks of chairs and things like that, and no one is around. Next thing I know, I'm in the kitchen, and I saw one of the most amazing sights, which was... Lines of Hasidim wearing their absolute finest clothing, making the matzah. And they were dressed, they had their, their shrimalach, their fur, their wide brim fur hats, their long black silk coats, 
You know, a couple of them had aprons on over that, but they were they were just like like how do you make how do you make matzah for Pesach? You well, you have to wear your finest clothing. I mean, if you can imagine someone dressing up in a tuxedo to work in the kitchen, not because he has to wear his tuxedo for an event, so he's just happened to wear his... No, no, no. To wear your tuxedo in order to make the food. You know, to give honor. To give honor to this process. And so we ended up... Uh, we ended up getting some of these matzahs. And by the way, there was a third mikvah <laughs> in the Naya Binyan. I don't speak any Yiddish, but the, the, those are two words. Naya Binyan means the new building, which was all the way up on this hill... Like about a quarter of a mile from there, and that's where that's where he, the person had originally sent us, which it was very difficult to find, but we eventually did find it. But anyway, if you remember, um, those of you who were there for the the talk before uh, before the holiday, I I had read that um, I had just learned from this um, Chabad uh, uh, Haggadah that the that the ideal shape of a matzah. I would have thought that the ideal shape of a matzah would be something that's flat, you know, which is just total simplicity in that way, you know, or surrender, or however you would want to describe it. But actually, the ideal shape of a matzah is something that's uh, concave. And um, so, why? Because it's a vessel to hold the divine light. And so, we were actually able to get concave matzahs from this place, and one of, probably one of the highlights of Pesach was um, was my my seven year old, you know, you know, just just talking about the vessels. That's the box with the vessels, you know. And then I'll tell you something else, which was, you know, God tests us in all sorts of interesting ways. I I, I pick the the finest matzahs to have those three matzahs, you know. For, for the Seder and they, I had a cover for them you know and then my daughter leaned her elbow on and I heard crunch <laughs> and you know it was like you know how do you react how do you react because it's sort of like if you get angry then what was what's the purpose of this entire thing you know that the matzos are more important than your than another human being it can't be so in a way it ended in the perfect way which was <laughs> the crunching of the matzos but i didn't get angry at all you know what i mean i was like oh that's fine that's fine don't worry about it. <laughs> and you know sometimes the reward it says the reward for a mitzvah is another mitzvah and so a little bit later on in the holiday, I had also selected these amazing matzos and put them down. And then my other child put down their elbow and went crunch. And so I got I got a second opportunity not to get upset, you know. But we get so lost. Sometimes we get so lost in some of the, the ritualistic aspects that we forget sometimes that it all boils down to another human being. And, and and who they are and their feelings and, and everything like that. And so it's very appropriate, very appropriate that um, that the that the mitzvah, you know, mitzvah is often uh, translated as uh, as commandment. And uh, it's not it, it, 
you know, this is one of those English translations that totally skews and, and perverts, really, any deeper understanding of what the Torah is. It's, it doesn't mean commandment. I mean, it can mean commandment, if you like, but that has so many associations with it which are so negative and, and, uh, and misleading, ultimately. You know, Reb Shlomo translates mitzvah as divine pathways. You know, these are opportunities to sort of connect, basically. And um, so it's it's appropriate that the the portion um, of the Torah uh, that we just read, Kedoshim, which which means holiness, has the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself in it. And it's um, in Hebrew, it's Viahafta Lareach Komocha. And you know. Uh, can you imagine how three words change the entire world? Three words. You know, it, it's a challenge to anyone who's creative, I think, to, to get across in, in a very concise, short way what your point is. Because what's, what was conveyed by those three words? It completely revolutionized the way everyone relates to each other the, among billions of people. So, so we're going to... I, I want to get into... Some, some levels of, of what some of the great commentators, uh, how they explain that phrase and, and what, what, how we can use that uh, in our own lives. But I just want to point something out um, beforehand. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. This, 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 this um, thought that I'm about to share with you, it's, 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 my, it's a thought that I came up with, I guess, and um, about maybe 17 years ago maybe 18 years ago. I, I wasn't married yet, and I was visiting uh, Jerusalem, and uh, I had made the acquaintance of a Breslover, a Chassid, who was a, a scribe, uh, and um, he had, uh, he lived in Me'er Sharim, which is like the real old world, you know, section in Jerusalem, you know, from, you know, it looks like it's hundreds of years old, and, uh, and he had, I think, 14 kids, and um, they, they invited me for lunch, and, you know, I was sitting at the lunch, and there's like this big table, and it's all his family. I mean, it would be, it's like a party, and they're all his kids, you know? <laughs> and I'm sitting next to him, and he's got, you know, he's, he, he looks like a, a chassid. He's got his, his strimal, you know, his big fur hat on, and, and um, somehow, somehow I came to share this thought that I, I'm about to tell you. I'm just telling you this because it was one of my favorite moments in my life. And so he's translating... A little, he's translating as I'm saying it, and then I get to the end, and uh, and there's like a beat, and the entire table breaks out in applause, and then he takes his fur hat and puts it on my head, <laughs> and I was like, all right. <laughs> so that was that was just unexpected because I don't I don't know I you know. You don't usually see Hasidim clap, maybe in prayer, but not like, you know, in a studio audience kind of way. But, um, but anyway, not that you have to like this idea, but it was just a, a moment that uh, was meaningful in my life. So, so, so God says something amazing. He says, he says, you shall be holy because I, God, am holy. So, first of all, that's, if you think about it, that's an incredibly audacious thing that, that we can be like God in any way possible. 
but that the idea that he's not just saying that this is an opportunity that's open to you, but no, be holy because I'm holy. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a mission. You're, 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 you're being charged with, with something, and you have that ability. So that's, that in itself is, is revelatory. So if you look at the word kidoshim, and like I say, it's, it's, if you want to look in the book here, it's, it's, it's sort of the middle word on the second line over here. Um, so if God, is saying, if God is saying, be holy because I'm holy, you would imagine that the word itself for holy is filled with holiness. Right? Wouldn't it make sense that the word itself is filled with holiness? So, so the way you spell it is, what I, what, what I want to do is, I want to separate this word into three, three parts. Um, the kuf, the first letter, let's put off to the side. The middle three letters we'll keep as one group, Dalit, Shin, and Yud. And the final mem we'll put off to the other side, okay? So, so let's look at the first, the, the middle three letters. If you, bless him, bless him. If you rearrange those middle three letters, it spells Shin, Dalit, and Yud, which you know is Shaddai. That's, that's one of the names of God. So, so sort of like, Right. In fact, if you look at any mezuzah on the doorpost, you'll see this name of God. Or sometimes it doesn't spell it out all, all, all together, but you'll see the letter Shin. And that letter Shin on a mezuzah is, is indicative of, of this name of God. Um, so, so the middle of the word Kedoshim, of holy, is one of the names of God. Now, let's go to the first letter, the letter Kuf. So from this Breslover, Chassid, this scribe, I learned from him, this is how I came up with this, I, I, I learned from him, I, I don't know if you know this, but when you, there, there are many, many laws of how to write the letters when you write a, a Torah scroll. It's actually a very, very complex thing. And um, the letters themselves are made up of other letters. Okay? So you combine existing letters in order to make other letters. Um, that's one of the reasons why it says there's 600,000 letters in a Torah scroll. If you count the number of letters in a Torah scroll, there's actually significantly less than 600,000. And there are different explanations given. So one explanation is you count the white spaces between the letters. That's one explanation. Another explana- Between the words, rather. Another explanation is that, no, 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 the letters themselves are made up of other letters, and if you count all the individual parts of it, then you get to 600,000. So, anyway... The letter Kuf is actually composed of two letters. The letter Chaf and the letter Vav combine to make the letter Kuf. Now, if you, if you look in terms of Gamatria, you know, every number, the, the Torah is infinite, so it's operating on an infinite number of levels, including mathematical. So, so the letter Chaf is, is 20, and the letter Vav is 6. So the letter Kuf equals 26, which we know is the numerical equivalent of the holiest name of God. Right? The Yudke Vavke. And Aleph. And Aleph too. So now, bless him. So now we see that the first letter of the word Kadoshim, meaning holy, God is using this word to tell us to be holy like him. The first letter is is filled with holiness. It's, it's hinting at his holiest name, the Tetragrammaton, if you want to be fancy. The middle three letters spell another name of God. The final letter, the Mem Sophie, amazingly, is also made out of the same two letters as the letter Chav. It's Chav 
and Vav. You put that together and you get the, the, the final Mem. So Chaf and Vav, we just said again, is 26, which is the name of Hashem. So you see, the word for holiness is filled with, is filled with godliness. The word itself. Um, so it says in the Torah, I think that there's a practical message to us in terms of our relationship with God that, that we can derive from this, um, which is that here in the middle is this name Shaddai, and it says that, that God came to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with this particular name, El Shaddai. And we know that the hallmark of their 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 relationship with God was that it was a very personal relationship that they had with God. They Each one of them blazed a different path in terms of divine service. Abraham did it through kindness, and Yitzchak did it through strength, and I, uh, Jacob did it through beauty, which was the perfect combination of kindness and strength. Um, and so, at the heart of one's quest for holiness has to be our personal connection with God. It has to be. And I want to give you an example, and it's totally mundane, but I think that's the goodness of this example, just how utterly mundane it is. You see, when we talk about holiness, especially from a Jewish point of view, we have to understand that that we have a revolutionary notion of what holiness is that really contrasts with the other religions of the world, which is that it's all about making all of the details of your daily life elevated. And it's, on some level, totally counterintuitive. Because if you think about in Eastern religions, for instance, the holy, the holy person sits on a mountain and is removed from, is removed from the day-to-day trials of, of life. And in, say, Catholicism, for instance, the, the priest doesn't, doesn't get married, doesn't have children. And so, so in, in that way, they're, they're sort of removed from the rigors and m- mundaneness and trials of, of everyday life. Whereas the, the, the Jewish point of view is actually to be thoroughly immersed in the details and to sanctify the details. And, and so someone who first approaches Jewish law and, and the holiness of it and the depth of it is often turned off, really. Because what they see is uh, reams and reams of laws <laughs> that seem so restrictive and so maddening. And what they don't understand often is the fact that no, the idea is that you're swimming in godliness. And if you're standing before God at every single moment, if you're immersed in God at every single moment, that means that anything, no matter how mundane, can be elevated and sanctified and you can find the holiness in that thing. So, but this, this involves a little bit of expanded consciousness. So let me give you an example. And this is my own sort of mundane personal example that just kind of happened. The, 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 the title of this class, by the way, is, is Living with God, uh, Spiritual Tools for a Mundane World. But it's the living with God part that I want to 
emphasize right now. I heard from Rabbi Green one time. He said that, you know, when you see like... Um, when you see like these romantic comedies or love stories or everything like that, it's sort of like, you know, the classic structure is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, right? And then that's when the movie ends. And he says, no, that's when I want to start watching. Like when they actually get married, what's their life about? Because that's sort of like, that, that's the story. That's what we need to know. You know, how do you, how do you, lived with your, how do you live with your beloved? You know what I mean? Like getting your beloved, okay, that's... You know, if you're lucky, you, you get him or you get her. But the, the living with the person part, that's, that's the tricky part. Um, so, so, so I'm in Whole Foods. And, and, uh, and I'm so tired. I'm really tired. I'm so run down. Like this, getting back from the Catskills, we were supposed to get back at like 10 p.m. and there were delays and delays. I didn't get to bed till like 4 in the morning. And then there were some other late nights that week, and I'm just, I'm, I'm like sleepwalking through the week. And um, uh, my wife was making schlissel challah, which is once a week there's a special uh, thing where you bake challah, and you take the key to your house, and you imprint it on the bottom of your challah, and it's like a blessing for prosperity. <laughs> so, and it's once a year. It's once a year. So... I went to five different stores getting like the perfect ingredients for the schlissel challah. Schlissel is Yiddish for key or German for key. And so now I was on, I was at Whole Foods looking for rye flour. <laughs> okay. And I, I was really tired. And then I went to the juice section and I decided, okay, this calls for some mango tango. <laughs> and so I got, I got a bottle of that and I put it in my wagon. And I'm kind of just trudging through the aisles, and I'm thinking, I got I need some energy. I got to drink this. And then I'm thinking, you know, it's kind of a low level to be kind of eating the food in the middle of the market, you know? Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, I really shouldn't do that, you know? I mean, I know better than to just be opening up this thing and just kind of chugging it as I'm going through the aisle. So I, I resist the urge, and then I'm. You know, it's five minutes later, and uh, I'm like, I, I, I need, I'm, I'm going to fall asleep. I need to open that thing up right now. And then I said, No, no, it's, it's a low level. It's a low level. Don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. And then here's the point where I'm telling you the story. I'm pushing my cart two seconds after resisting that that third or fourth time, and I kind of looked up to the ceiling and I said, I'm doing this for you, God. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing changed. And it wasn't this, like, crushing thing. Oh, it's not right. You're not supposed to do it. (laughs) You know? All of a sudden, it was like, ah, ah, I'm in a relationship. That's why I'm not supposed to do it. Because, oh, yes! (laughs) You know, just everything clicked into place. And... One of the, one of the uh, explanations of the Ahavta Lareach Kamocha, to love God, to, to love your neighbor like yourself, is who is your neighbor? God. God's your neighbor. Love your neighbor. I heard Reb Shlomo say, who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is whoever's standing next to you at the moment. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
What I love about that explanation is that the whole, you see, the whole tension of, of enlightenment, if you will, the whole tension is for it not to become abstract. And because you're talking about the infinity of God at every single moment, it immediately goes to the abstract. So, so, so anyone who's serious about enlightenment has to constantly be harnessing the abstract. I'll give you an example. Again, from the, from the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Someone comes up to Hillel. You know, one of the greatest figures in Jewish history in the Talmud. And it's someone who wants to convert to Judaism and says, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. So, by the way, Shammai, who he had gone to first, said, get out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you can spend lifetimes learning the Torah, and you want to learn the entire Torah while you're standing on one, one foot? It's like a, you're not showing the proper respect or the proper appreciation of what, what you're trying to get into. So, by the way, that Shammai, lest you think that he sounds mean in that story, says in Pirkei Avos, be the first one to greet everyone. So he's actually... He actually promotes, you know, friendliness in a, in a, in a wonderful way. Um, so, but, but then Hillel says, so, so this person doesn't give up, which is great. And he goes to Hillel now, and he says, he, he says the same thing, actually, now that I think about it. You would think that he would have changed the request after he got that reception, right? That's interesting. I have to think about that. But anyway, so he says, he says to Hillel the exact same thing. He says, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Now listen carefully to what Hillel says back to him. He says, okay. He says, don't do what is hateful to yourself to other people. He says, all the rest is commentary. Now go and learn. So he gives him a very warm reception. But listen to the difference between love your neighbor as yourself, which he didn't say. He says, don't do what's hateful to yourself to other people. There's a very deep difference in terms of the presentation of that idea. By way of introduction, I'll give you another example of this. Someone came up to... I. I the, the, I've, I've heard it said in the name of the young Chidusha Rim, the first Gera Rebbe, when he was a boy, he was sort of like a, you know, like a boy genius. And uh, an older rabbi came up to him and said, I'll give you whatever the currency of the day was, a kopeck, let's say. I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where God is. And so this young child says back to him, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't. <laughs> right? So... You know he got the better of the rabbi there. <laughs> but how exactly? He said something deeper, but what did he say that's deeper? And how is that the same thing as the idea, don't do what's hateful to yourself to someone else? In other words, you have two examples here where, where a teaching is being phrased in the negative, and by it being phrased in the negative, somehow something more resonant is coming across, but, but what is that idea? How do you put your finger on it? So I, I'd like to give you my, my understanding of it, which is, which is the following. It's exactly, it's, it's exactly, bless you, it's exactly what we're saying a person has to resist, which is 
which is don't make the infinity of God abstract. Make it concrete. You see, if you say, when the rabbi said, I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where God is, the answer that he wanted was, God is everywhere, seemingly. So, but everywhere is a really big place. (laughs) And once everywhere becomes abstract, everywhere, unintentionally, becomes nowhere. And then you're just on your own again. Right? But if you say there's no... Show me where God isn't. He said, there's no place devoid of godliness. Which means wherever I'm looking, at that moment I'm seeing godliness. The same thing with don't do what is hateful to someone else. You know what? You know what I love? I... I love beating myself up. I, I love, like, I've got this tape in my head where I've got a string of invectives and hateful language, which I say to myself all the time, and you know what? I love you. I'm going to love you like I love myself. I'm going to tell you exactly what's wrong with you right now. <laughs> you know? What, what, um, what, what Hashem says to Lovin when he's chasing after Yaakov, right? Like, Yaakov is, like, getting away from his experience with Levin. And it's like, he takes the family and the wives, and he's like, let's get out of here. And then Levin finds out that he's split, and he's chasing after him. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a small journey. He's got a lot of catching up to do. He goes to sleep. God comes to him in a dream, And Levin is like, you know, one of the worst figures in the whole Torah. God says to Levin, listen, don't say anything good to Yaakov and don't say anything bad to Yaakov. Because because what's good for Levin is going to be bad for Yaakov. So if if you put it in this way, don't do what's hateful to yourself to another person. Okay, well, well, now all of a sudden I've got a practical blueprint. Practical, that's the key word. Blueprint of how to relate to another human being. Let me Anything that just makes me angry, I'm not going to do to them. And that's all of a sudden concrete. You know, uh, the Kasav Rebbe, Vizhnitz, actually comes from Kasav, we're talking about Vizhnitz today. It says something really cool. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Let me just tell you the Belzer Torah first. The Belzer Rebbe says something really cool, which is, what love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you look at the word neighbor, what is the neighbor? What Love your neighbor. He says, if you look at, you know, Hebrew is so infinite, Right? Like I, my, one of my favorite teachings ever, Reb Shlomo said that, you know, because our, our mystical tradition is that God created the world out of the Hebrew alphabet. He took the letters, and if you want to think of it in terms of energy wavelengths or whatever it is, took the letters and combined them and made the world. Um, so that the, the, the language of nature is actually Hebrew. So, so Reb Shlomo said one time that when the wind rustles through the trees, the sound it's making is in Hebrew. You know, I always like that. Um, so, 
so again, this is another sort of snapshot of a, an infinite moment or the infinite levels that the Torah is operating on. Re'echa, if you take those three letters and you, if you love their neighbor, in other words, what letter is the neighbor of the letters that spell Re'echa? So, so it spells out the word shuffle, which is humility. So in other words, love your neighbor. The word that's the neighbor, or spells, spells out a word, the key to loving your neighbor like yourself is this word humility. If a person isn't, uh, if a person isn't, constantly looking out after their own honor, then then they make friends so much faster. You know, I, I noticed one time something that blew my mind, which is that sometimes when people shake hands with other people, they're not going to greet the person. They're extending their hand in order to give that person an opportunity to shake their hand. <laughs> Get to know me, you know? Um, and yet it's masquerading it's masquerading as this form of friendliness and introduction hello how are you but it's really hi shake my hand meet me you know so so once not always this is just this is a subtle thing you know just this is just something I've observed on, on some occasions um, so so uh so the idea is in, in, in these instances, and sometimes these things are so subtle within ourselves, if at the opening of the relationship, already it's us and our personal honor and our personal status, whatever that is, that's, that's, that's at, the, at the front of the relationship, then it becomes really hard to get to, the, to, to loving another person, basically. But if a person is sort of like, doesn't mean that you should make yourself into a doormat. That's the opposite side, you know. You don't want people to take advantage of you, okay? You have to balance all these different ideas together. But, but, but at the same time, though, if a person is in a humble place, then all of a sudden they're rooting for everybody, you know, because other people are just a, just a reflection of God. And now that, that gets us to this next level of loving your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the Pasuk in the Torah you'll see an amazing P.S. It says, it says, uh, love your neighbor like yourself. I am God. What's I am God doing there? It's actually, uh, it's 19 verse 18. It's in a separate section from where we've been. So, love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. So now, listen to what the Kasava Rebbe says, right? This is the, the forebear of the Vishnitzer Rebbe. We were talking about, they were the ones who were baking the matzahs, okay? He says, so love your neighbor like you love yourself. So what we have is two loves there, right? Two loves there. And now we're trying to explain what the I am God is doing at the end of that verse, because it seems superfluous, Okay. So again, getting to the numerical level of the Torah, love, ahava, is the number 13. It adds up to the number 13, okay? So, so you're one love, 
right? And then your neighbor is another love. So that's another 13. And so 13 and 13 equals 26, which is the name of God. I am God. Love your neighbor like yourself. I am God. That's not just a verse. That's actually a mathematical formula. 13 plus 13 equals 26. I mean, it's just amazing when you can translate a verse into math. You know, it's a formula. It's a formula. By uniting with your commonality, which is your soul, which is a piece of God, you bring out through that love God's open manifestation. So love your neighbor as yourself. I am God because God's, God's, God's revelation becomes clear to both of you. Um, speaking of love, I saw this story. Um, you know, I, 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 I think that I think that it would be hard to marry to be married to someone who's really holy. <laughs> Maybe not, but the thing is, is that holy people are doing wild things all the time. You know. And um, I saw I saw a story here, which was just a, an example of just someone who just just loves 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 loves. Um, one of the rebbies, um, I, I I don't have the name right now. I'm sorry, but one of the rebbies um, comes home and he sees there's a poor person who's um, waiting to to collect some charity, and he checks his pockets and. He doesn't have any money to give him. And so he's like in a panic because how can he send away a poor person without giving him something, you know? So he starts going through his house and there's no money in the house. And so he's just like opening up drawers and everything like that and he opens up one of the drawers and he sees uh, a ring that belongs to his wife. Well, it's his too, right? It's theirs, but... More specifically, it's his wife's ring. <laughs> he takes the ring and he gives it to the poor person. And he says, here, here, go ahead, here, that's yours. So the poor person goes away. His wife comes back and says, what did you do? He said, um, I gave him your ring because we didn't have any money in the house and I couldn't not give him something, so I gave him your ring. She said, what? <laughs> that, that ring is worth a lot of money. So he said, okay, um, all right, okay, okay. So he goes and he calls after the poor person and he brings them back to the house and he says, listen, I have to tell you something very important. That ring that I gave you is worth a lot of money, so make sure you don't get a penny less than what it's worth. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Not the ending that I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that the trick is, and maybe, oh, we're late already, sorry. Let me just end on this one thought. I think that the, the, the trick, or one of the tricks, is... Um, if we're going to get into this consciousness that God is our neighbor and that that all of life basically is an ongoing dialogue with God and all of our human interactions are an ongoing dialogue with God that 
that one of the obstacles that that stops us um, from receiving is the fact that we're, I think, constantly receiving from the wrong places. Let me let me um, let me explain what I mean by that. You know, a king a king doesn't take; a king receives. It's a very big difference. You know, in fact, R- Rabbi Aaron has a has a, a story that he that he that he likes to tell about going to a Hasidic Rebbe, and the the Rebbe was giving out food to people there, and he went to take the food from his hand, and the Rebbe kept on pulling back the food, and this happened several times, and then someone says, "No, you can't, you can't take the food from him. You have to, like with your palm pointing to the ceiling." You have to receive. You have to receive the food. You can't take the food. You have to receive the food. And the problem is, is that so many of us, myself included, we're we're taking instead of receiving. And and when we take, and I don't mean that we're not being generous. That, that's not my point. I'm, I'm talking about something even more fundamental than that. I'm talking about where we go wrong in terms of understanding. God's uh, omnipresence and God's guidance um, is that so often we think that whatever we're getting is coming from other people. And so since it's coming from you and I want it from you, let me get it from you. And if you're not giving it to me, I'm going to have to take it from you. But where the reality is, is that it's all coming from God. And so if I, if, if I got a little less, if I got a little less than what I wanted, if at that moment I realize that it's coming from God and I go into receiving mode, then you know what? If I'm receiving that from God, holy smokes, that's exactly what I needed. Okay, I could have done a little bit. I, I could have done with a, another zero, <laughs> all right? <laughs> But you know what? If it's from God, if it's from God, it's good. You know. So it, it will give you. It will. It will straighten you out. I mean, you'll chiropractically adjust your soul in 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 a serious way because all of a sudden, okay, that thing. Okay, but wait a second. It's coming from God. Let me just receive it, and then all of a sudden you're in a place of gratitude. You actually have it at that moment. You're actually aware of the cosmic map at that moment because you're not trying to attribute power to flesh and blood. And so everything falls into place. So we should just be blessed with a good, strong week and and just take advantage of all this light of freedom that's just been pumped into the world full time. And... Uh, Yay. <laughs> <laughs>